0: This week, Pro Se is brought to you by Jams. Jams is setting the industry standard in virtual ADR. Jams mediators and arbitrators are masterful at bringing parties together and resolving contentious disputes in virtually any environment. Trained to navigate multiple online platforms, they're supported by moderators who keep everyone connected. Schedule a remote or hybrid hearing at jamsadr.com virtual. Welcome to Pro Se, Law 360's weekly podcast. I'm your host Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my co-hosts Bill Donahue, hello, hello, and Alex Lawson.
1: Hi, everyone! Uh, excited for the show today. It's very, uh, it's very good one, I think. Uh, did want to, did want to hit on a quick news item from Hollywood. Uh, they're rebooting Night Court.
0: Really? Good. Did you guys hear did about this? I did not know that.
1: Now, Amber, you're now. This is now. I never. I. I I was never a big Night Court head. It was definitely like on the TV in my house when I was a kid. You're a little bit older than us, Amber. Did you ever watch Night Court?
0: I feel similar to you, Alex, that, you know, never a big watcher, but it was one of those sort of staples that like reruns were on. Yes. I've caught a few. Um, I think not being a regular watcher maybe is why I would be more intrigued about a reboot. I tend to be pretty snarky about reboots if I liked the original property too much.
1: Yeah. Yeah. The only Night Court reboot that I really acknowledge is the one that happens in the third season of Thirty Rock, one of the all time oh, great, right. one of the all time great Thirty Rock episodes when Tracy stages a Night Court reboot to cheer Kenneth up
2: because they have to have new page outfits. Um, mm. I know almost nothing about Night Court, so okay, <laughs> uh, that's that's my contribution. Great. Uh, <laughs> uh,
1: well, we should probably get to the news anyway. Um, got a really good show, like I said. Bill and I had a chat with. Uh, our own Ryan Davis, Law360 uh, patent whiz, um, to talk about the uh, pretty stunning news out of Washington this week that the Biden administration is has come out in favor of loosening some... Intellectual Property Rules for COVID Vaccines and Treatments. Um, It's caught a lot of people off guard, and Ryan uh, knows this stuff in and out. It was a a fun chat with him, so uh, stick
2: around for that. It was a great chat, but uh, before then, I think we have some more uh, sort of breaking news out of D.C. that Amber's going to tell us about.
0: Yeah, it was just really a big day in Washington yesterday. Um, So because of the coronavirus pandemic last year, the Trump administration enacted a nationwide moratorium on evictions. And then the Biden administration had extended that moratorium through the end of June. But yesterday, we're recording this on Thursday, a D.C. federal judge struck down that eviction bar and said that the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention had exceeded statutory authority when they imposed the moratorium. This ruling, as you can imagine, is a a big win for a group of realtors and property owners who brought the suit and a blow to the administration and also to a lot of people who are worried about being potentially evicted.
2: Yeah, it's a very interesting case dealing with the authority of an agency that you don't really associate with something like uh, an eviction moratorium. You don't think of the CDC yeah. doing that. But tell us about this suit. How were they? How were these forces that were opposed to it challenging it?
0: Yeah, I just kind of wanted to break down the two sides because it sounds straightforward, but I think it's worth just sort of painting this picture because it's such a pandemic story here. Yeah. The battle lines are pretty clear on the one side, you have the federal government who said the eviction ban was really critical because even though the economy was hard hit by the pandemic, Because of this moratorium, eviction filings declined 65 percent in 2020. That's over the usual annual rate. And that's according to some stats from a nonprofit group called Eviction Lab. But that's basically the way to show that this moratorium had the intended effect that in a, a really bad economic time without it, you would expect a huge explosion of evictions. On the flip side, the case itself was brought in November by the Alabama Association of Realtors and also a group of real estate agents in Georgia. They claimed the moratorium was just a sort of a burden shifting issue where rent payments from tenants were not coming to landlords so if you couldn't evict anybody it just shifts who's struggling from the renter to these landlords who are actually struggling themselves in the face of the coronavirus pandemic so they they were arguing that they were having trouble meeting their own expenses their own mortgages and that was creating a, you know another set of economic harms in this in this instance
1: yeah apart from the apart from the patchwork of actual sort of public health related measures the eviction ban is like one of the one of the first and biggest sort of nationwide policy rollouts that that um, that the pandemic brought about. so obviously it's very pertinent that it um, now got a full reading. Uh, from a judge, and what did the judge have to say exactly?
0: Yeah, given how messy so many of our COVID stories have been, and how complicated you would think it would be to just undo an eviction moratorium, it's actually a pretty straightforward ruling. U.S. District Judge uh, Dabney Friedrich ruled that Congress just didn't have an express um, clear mandate to grant the CDC the sweeping authority under what's called the Public Health Service Act. So, The judge did acknowledge that COVID-19 has created a bunch of public health problems, a serious crisis, just unprecedented challenges in the economy, but then said this in quotes. The pandemic has, quote, triggered difficult policy decisions that have had enormous real-world consequences. The Nationwide Eviction Moratorium is one such decision. So very clearly laying out that this is a problem. But the judge went on to say that it's not the role of the the courts to handle this. It's the political branches, it's Congress, to determine what policy measures can combat something as big as a pandemic. And -hmm. the court's only duty, in this judge's estimation, was to determine if that Public Health Service Act granted the CDC the authority to impose something like this. When he weighed the question, he said that they didn't have the authority. The CDC had made an argument that they relied on a little part of the statute that gives them isolation and quarantine authority. So basically empowers them to take actions that keep a communicable disease from spreading, especially between the states. Right. And that's what the CDC hinged this on. They said that if people were evicted in mass from um, their homes, they would spread all around the country, potentially spreading this disease along with them. They wouldn't be able to quarantine at home. And that's why they had this eviction ban. Um, Congress had actually okayed an extension of the eviction moratorium through the end of January, but did not do so again for the most recent extension, which is the one that would have taken it through June. And because Congress didn't weigh in at this point, that's part of why the judge in this case said, hey, this is Congress's thing to take up and do. They mm-hmm. didn't do it. So now I'm saying that the CDC can't do it alone.
2: Yeah, it was obviously an expansive or, uh, you know, a creative reading of the statute, which is something we've seen a lot in the pandemic. The the, yes. the world and its laws were not necessarily written and its contracts were not necessarily written to deal with something like this. So folks have been trying to ram, you know, square pegs into round holes throughout this entire thing. Um, walk us through what comes next. What happens after this ruling?
0: There is far from over, guys. I think we'll, we'll surely be talking about this one in future episodes of Pro Se. So the Justice Department almost immediately filed an appeal of the ruling because obviously the Biden administration is very committed to having this moratorium stay in place. They're looking for an emergency stay pending decision by an appellate court. And then the court immediately agreed to put the ruling on hold until May 12th to give landlords more time to file legal papers opposing that longer stay. So right now we're in a bit of a stasis with this exact case. But it remains really unclear how broad the impact will be on renters and and other jurisdictions as well. It doesn't necessarily bind state housing court judges. And those are the ones that usually rule on eviction orders. There's also two other federal courts out there that have upheld the moratorium. So we've got a real mess on our hands is what I'm saying. Um, Housing rights folks have warned that, of course, they say that this could embolden um, landlords to begin eviction proceedings. Whether or not the housing court judges actually agree with them is another, another matter. But that this could cause a big surge in the filings. And then most states have enacted their own versions of eviction freezes. That's beyond what the federal government had tried to impose here. So that has to be taken into account depending on jurisdiction. So you can see as I'm explaining this that a lot of complicated patchworks going on here. A lot of court cases still making their way through and conflicting with one another. So we've got a long way to go before we get ultimate clarity on what's going to happen to people that are having trouble paying their rent.
2: For our second story, we're going to jump from one agency to another. We're going to jump from the CDC to the IRS. Uh, Just in time for tax day, uh, which is coming up next week, the extended tax day. Um, A uh, a federal court ruled this week that the IRS had charged too much, like hundreds of millions of dollars too much, uh, to the estate of Michael Jackson when the singer died in 2009, It's a very interesting ruling because uh, the the sort of centered on this, uh, you know, looking at how Michael Jackson was perceived in 2009. It's a little bit different than how he's perceived in 2021. And it's, um, you know, it's sort of turned on that. So it's a very interesting ruling. I want to break it all down. Uh, first of all, thank you for reminding
1: me that it's tax day coming up. Uh, really appreciate the public service there, folks. Um, pay
2: your taxes. That's yeah. what we would. We on we on pro se would on would time that. preferably.
1: Um, but uh, so you said uh, th- there was um, uh, sort of an, an an overcharge by the IRS, which is at the center of this case. How much money are we talking about here exactly?
2: So it really starts with what what they what they say was an undercharge was a underpayment. Um, in oh, twenty thirteen, right. yeah, yeah. uh, the IRS audited the uh, a few years after uh, Jackson had passed away. The IRS audited the estate's tax filing, and mm-hmm. they decided that the estate had underpaid by something like five hundred million dollars on um, the taxes that were owed. And um, they added on a couple hundred million dollars in late fees and all told the IRS wanted something like seven hundred million dollars from the Jackson (laughs) estate.
0: A couple hundred million in late fees.
2: Right. Clearly the Jackson estate was not thrilled about this. Um, Litigation ensued. uh, But after a series of uh, settlements sort of winnowed this down, the two sides headed to uh, the U.S. tax court to battle over how to reach the proper valuation of three different assets that were held by the estate uh, when Jackson died. Um, two of them are sort of mundane. It's the his ownership stake in these two different music catalogs. But one, which is the third one, um the, the, and sort of the most crucial thing here is how to value his image and likeness, you know, the intellectual property rights to Michael Jackson himself. Mm-hmm. Um the estate argued that um those three buckets of assets were worth combined something around 5 million dollars factoring in debt and all sorts of other other things. The IRS, on the other hand, said that they were worth somewhere around four hundred and eighty million dollars. So <laughs> we were not close here uh, in, in what these two sides thought this estate was th- these assets were worth.
0: I love when courts get a question like this where it just is so wildly divergent. What do you think, um, Your
2: Honor? What's it looking like to you?
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, So what did the court say?
2: So the court ruled this week, uh, and they mostly sided with the Jackson estate. Rather than four hundred and eighty million dollars in assets, the tax judge said that these three sort of chunks were worth only about one hundred and eleven million dollars, which is still a lot. Yeah, um, still certainly more than than what the estate thought they were worth. But um, so the the most interesting aspect is here that I sort of nodded to earlier was how the court valued Jackson's image and likeness, the publicity rights to use him in all sorts of different ways going forward. This is distinct from his catalogs of music, the copyrights and all that stuff. That's distinct. This is his personal intellectual property. Um, So, This was the part of the case that which is why the case was being closely watched, other than the fact that it's Michael Jackson. It's seven hundred million dollars. But this issue of how you uh, assess the value of a dead celebrity's sort of ongoing Mm -hmm. publicity rights is a big thing. I mean, you see Marilyn Monroe on shirts. You see uh, all sorts of, of, um, you know, deceased celebrities. The idea of how who owns that and how much it's worth. These are big questions. So. The IRS, with the help of an expert who uh, had previously assessed the, the the this kind of these kind of questions about Dr. Seuss and and Tupac and Andy Warhol, they argued that um, there were plenty of revenue streams available to the estate going forward. That there could be there could be a theme park, there could be a Broadway sort of a jukebox musical, there could sure. be merchandise, lots of other things. So they assessed the value of Jackson's image rights at uh, one hundred and sixty one million dollars. The judge uh, in this week's ruling called that analysis fantasy. Um, the judge said that they were worth a mere $4 million at the time of Jackson's death, which is mm. um, going from 161 to 4, which is where you get the really big discrepancy that we yeah. saw in in the ruling. And um, so to get down to the the nitty gritty of this ruling, the judge said that the IRS had not properly analyzed these values at the time of Jackson's death in 2009. That was really the key here that the 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 IRS was looking at you know potential revenue streams things that might come down the road but that those were not foreseeable at the moment because D- Jackson was debt ridden he was deeply unpopular and he was on the verge of bankruptcy at the time and 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 most of all the judge pointed out that quote plausible allegations of repellent behavior ruined his personal reputation and that sort of was the subtext to this whole ruling that you know obviously Michael Jackson was accused of very serious uh, sexual molestation uh, at one point mm-hmm. and that 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 needed to be taken into account when you when you know how people viewed Michael Jackson in 2009. Um, so the judge applied that scrutiny to each of the IRS's valuations and I'll just give you one example to sort of show how this analysis went. The IRS said that Jackson's uh, Neverland ranch and mansion um, could have been turned into some kind of theme park and that, that would be a way to use his likeness to generate more revenue. Huh. But the judge said that in 2009, the idea of opening a theme park in at, at Neverland was ridiculous. Here's the quote. To any reasonable observer, however, Neverland was more of a recent crime scene than a future Wonderland because of the stigma associated with the child abuse allegations. Common sense suggests that a home owned by an alleged child molester where the alleged molestation took place would be less than an ideal spot for a theme park for children. Now, I don't know if this judge is a
1: professional sort of consultant for the theme park industry, but he seems like he might be pretty on point here. Right. Uh, right, right. uh yes, I think that's I think that's pretty tight analysis.
2: Um but and and the other big thing here was that the uh the judge really made a point to say that No matter how much we even to this day, you know, 12, 11, 12 years after he passed away, we still think of Michael Jackson as this huge celebrity. You really have to value this in terms of the long term and that any dead celebrity their the valuation will, uh, Erode over time, and will mm-hmm. will you know that they will fade from from our consciousness, which and that's really the big finding here that I think other attorneys who are doing this kind of work for uh, for the estates of dead celebrities that that they will look at that because the lower you can sort of get this uh, this valuation, the lower your tax burden is. Quote: Popular culture always moves on. And just as the grave will swallow Jackson's fame, time will erode the estate's income.
0: I am going to leave this podcast extremely depressed. This that judge is... has
2: bars, man. That is that is <laughs> that is some writing there. The ruling was wild. Yeah. It's like it's like <laughs> two hundred and seventy pages. But I would suggest everyone go uh, give it a quick a quick read. It had it had Shakespeare <laughs> in it. it. It all sorts of weird stuff.
0: I mean, that's really just a gut punch. Like everyone will forget, even the most famous of us. <laughs> Um barring that sort of existential crisis it's thrown me into, what <laughs> else is left uh, from this ruling? I know there was some other stuff to tie up as well.
2: Well, the court did side with the IRS on one of these catalogs of music, um, setting it at $107 million. So that's where we get most of this valuation. Um, The total valuation, they said, was $111 million. And um, so, you know, that's not the tax burden. That's the value that these assets are set at. So they're going to have to go back and come up with a new tax bill for the estate. the judge also said that those penalties should not apply. So that's um, another another big win. All around, a very, very big win for this estate and probably for other celebrity uh, estates who are trying to figure out how these likeness rights will be valued looking into the future.
0: Once again, today's Pro Se is brought to you by JAMS. Jams is setting the industry standard in virtual ADR. Jams mediators and arbitrators are masterful at bringing parties together and resolving contentious disputes in virtually any environment. Trained to navigate multiple online platforms, they're supported by moderators who keep everyone connected. Schedule a remote or hybrid hearing at jamsadr.com virtual.
1: The COVID-19 vaccines are here, but as the countries that developed these life-saving treatments focus on vaccinating their own populations, many developing nations have been left in a lurch. This week, the Biden administration backed a suspension of global intellectual property rules that advocates say may improve worldwide distribution of vaccines and teed up a clash with the powerful pharmaceutical lobby. Here to break it all down with us is Law360 editor-at-large, intellectual property whiz, uh, Ryan Davis. Ryan, welcome back to the show.
3: It's great to be here. Thanks for having me.
1: I'm uh, Bill is here with us as well. And I'm glad that the three of us are going to kick this around a little bit. This is a really complex and important issue that plays in all of our individual sandboxes a little bit. There's some trade law, some IP law uh, to talk about. But I think to set the scene a little bit, I think it's important for people to know there's um, a huge disparity in the uh, access to COVID nineteen vaccines between rich and poor countries right now. Um, some advocates have gone so far as to call this vaccine apartheid. Um, and there are a group of these countries that have begun to take to, that are trying to take some some steps to address this. How have they done that? What is what has been going on here?
3: Let's see. So at the World Trade Organization, uh, India and South Africa have spearheaded a proposal to. Uh, suspend intellectual property protections for, um, things that are related to, uh, preventing or treating, uh, COVID-19. So that's a, it's a pretty broad and sweeping proposal that could can cover lots of different types of intellectual property mm-hmm. patents to trade secrets. Um, and a, a wide swath of anything you can think of that kind of touches on, yeah. um, on COVID. <clears throat> Uh, So the idea there is that uh, if uh, people were able to produce these things without fear uh, that they could be accused of intellectual property infringement, they could be wider access around the world and, uh, you know, help people help the world fight the pandemic, I guess.
2: Yeah, I mean, loosening the rules for loosening intellectual property seems like an easy sort of straightforward thing to do. But obviously this has been deadlocked for months. And this announcement that we're talking about this week was fairly controversial. So walk us through why this is such a contentious thing.
3: Well, the uh, the United States and a lot of other wealthy nations had uh, kind of stood firm against this idea at the WTO since it was introduced in October, uh, making a number of different arguments that uh, kind of the uh, the main two are that uh, it it wouldn't, Really solve the problem that the the reason why the, all the vaccines are in the the major wealthy countries is has less to do with IP and more to do with uh, you know production capacity in in other nations and access to supplies and things like that. Um, and then the other kind of uh, counter argument to doing this is just that uh, you know pharmaceutical companies you know, invest billions of dollars in in developing these vaccines and treatments. And uh, they depend on intellectual property to recoup their investment uh, and waiving that uh, saying they can't enforce intellectual property is just kind of gums up the whole works of the, uh, you know, pharmaceutical industry and would reduce their incentive or motivation to, to develop these life-saving treatments. if If they knew that their IP rights could be, Taken away,
1: and uh, I'll parachute in here just to sort of inform everybody. I report on the WTO all the time. This is a this is a international body that operates by consensus, which means that you have to get 164 members to agree on something, and the very powerful ones like the United States and the European Union can single handedly block it, uh, which mm-hmm. is what they've been doing um, until this week. Um, we got. Uh, I guess I'll we'll talk about some of the nuance here, but it is sort of a potential sea change. The U.S. had stood firm against this proposal for months and they've begun to sing a different tune. What is that all about?
3: Right. So on Wednesday, the uh, U.S. Trade Representative, Catherine Tai, announced that the, uh, the Biden administration is is on board and supports uh, a waiver intellectual property for covid vaccines, which uh was something of a surprise. It's, the U.S. is known kind of around the world in lots of different contexts for being very zealous about protecting yeah. IP and encouraging other countries to, um, uh, you know, in, encourage enforcing enforcement of IP. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this does seem like a pretty big shift. It came after some fierce lobbying on both for and against it. Yeah, uh, There, I think, the the majority of the democrats in in congress wrote to biden earlier this week urging him to oppose it a lot of republicans are against it and the pharmaceutical industry obviously is very strongly against it yeah um but uh the administration has heard all these views and decided to to get on board uh at least somewhat with with this idea
1: uh yeah it was it was a a pretty surprising development there were there were there were sort of anonymously sourced reports saying that the Biden administration might both oppose and support in the days running up. The various lobbies were like floating their little trial balloons. Um, Butch came out with this statement that said they're going to support a waiver. Um, but now I know some of the hard work begins. Um, what was what was being blocked at the WTO was even the start of a discussion about what a waiver looks like. And I know that uh, Ty in her statement said. Um, the exact language of like what happens to this very valuable IP is going to be the subject of discussions at the WTO for some time. Uh, What can you tell us about that?
3: Yeah. So the um, one thing that kind of stood out in the, uh, the announcement is that the administration said it was supporting and waiver of intellectual property on COVID vaccines, which is somewhat yeah. narrower than w- was being proposed. And that sort of tees up what happens next. I mean, As you alluded to, you have to get consensus among all of the members. Yeah. Um, so that uh, the talks are going to have to be about, you know, what exactly is covered by this? The, the waiver has also always been intended to be temporary just during the pandemic. Yes. What does that mean? When does it end? Yeah. When does it end? <laughs> <laughs> That's going to be a big uh, conversation. Um, and, uh, there is some sense that the U S getting on board could, you know, shake things loose and get other countries to, that have been opposing it, um, to, uh, to maybe support it as well. Yeah. There's some movement along those lines. The European union today said they might be open to it, but Germany came out strongly against it. So there's good, there's a lot more to go yeah. before anything like this could ever take effect if it ever does.
1: Uh, yeah, in a lot of ways, the the real work begins now. I mean, up to now, it's been some pretty high stakes political discourse. And now we're going to get into the fun weeds of a trade negotiation. Um, we should clarify here, and you referenced this in an earlier answer. Um, but one of the uh, one of the pharmaceutical lobbies, you know, main points here is that they don't think that this that this uh, waiver is like some kind of silver bullet, and in this way. Um, They actually kind of agree with public health advocates because even advocates have said um, this is one thing that has to happen to improve distribution of vaccine. Can you talk about like where this we're we're talking to you about the IP issues, but it is part of a bigger puzzle. What does that look like?
3: Right. Um, So, yeah, just the idea that people can use intellectual property without fear of, uh, you know, liability of some kind is 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 one obstacle potentially that uh, was standing in the way of creation of more vaccines. But there's also these other factors of uh, it's, you know, these are very complicated technologies and they're in the case of the, you know, uh, Pfizer and Moderna vaccines, it's something that's never been done before. So yeah. whether or not there are going to be countries, uh, companies rather, in the U.S. or in other nations that have the capacity and ability to do this, um, to make these vaccines, is, is another question. Uh, and some, a lot of the advocates um, for the waiver will tell you that the, this is not going to solve it and there needs to be uh, additional steps um, uh, such as you know, finding a way for the the companies that make the vaccines to to share what they know and the yeah the, the secrets of how to to actually create these complicated technologies. I've
1: seen it likened to you not only it's it's one thing to get the recipe, but you might need some tips from the chef as well uh, when it's something this complicated. Yes,
2: mm-hmm. we started this talk with you know this very sort of straightforward idea of of you know patents will be temporarily suspended in this context. And that seems simple and straightforward. And now we've spent the entire rest of the conversation <laughs> discussing how complicated that is. So, I mean, we'll see what happens with this, uh, you know, as as these uh, detailed negotiations go forward. But I mean, it, is there a sense that that this is, um, you know, that, that that sort of top line thing maybe is not actually the end result here, that this is perhaps the uh, the opening of a negotiation with these pharmaceutical companies to take steps to do some of the complex stuff that you just mentioned?
3: Right. Yeah, there has been some speculation that the U.S. saying they support this uh, is, is maybe uh, – there may be more reluctance to it than the the statement might make it sound. And there's yeah. a – and the, um, the idea – that maybe they're they're working with here is the threat of the IP waiver. It could be used as leverage against the uh, pharmaceutical companies to you know get them to share uh, their technology or trade secrets and know-how with other other nations, and uh, with the idea that you know if if you don't do this, then maybe we'll waive your intellectual property. It's a, a, a full giveaway. Yeah, <laughs> right. Um, so we'll see how, how it works um, and uh, what the uh, what shape the negotiations take from here. But it's definitely the whole uh, question looks much different now than it did last week when the U.S. was standing firm against this.
1: Yeah, it's a fascinating dynamic. And, you know, like you say, we'll see what happens in the negotiations. The pharmaceutical companies are not happy about it, even if it ends up being this more measured thing because this is a dynamic i mean covid is like a once in a generation sort of event but this this tussle over ip rights and access to medicines for poor countries has been happening like in a lot of different contexts this is just one that is obviously getting the most eyeballs so it'll be it'll be fascinating to see uh what shape the debate takes this time um all right uh ryan davis um uh thank you for breaking this down it's a hugely important story uh really enjoyed the chat thanks for coming
2: on
3: Yeah, this has been great. Thanks a lot.
2: Thanks, Ryan.
0: We like to end our show with something offbeat. And um, Bill, I think you have a little bit of a, a repeat story for us this week.
2: Yeah, we have a nice uh, coda to a an offbeat story <laughs> that we talked about in late 2019 and then I think again in our in our show of our favorite offbeat segments. I think it 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 popped up there as well. Yes. We're talking about a guy who was literally bounced out of a uh, oral arguments hearing at the Second Circuit for being just a huge jerk to the judges, just being like not a nice guy. Uh, So this week, that attorney was formally reprimanded by the grievance committee for the Second Circuit, but he otherwise avoided any sort of serious punishment. One of my very
1: favorite characters in the pro se canon uh, is this guy, but he may not be uh, as fondly remembered by all all the listeners as he is by me or by the rest of us. Just uh, give us a quick reset here. Who are we talking about?
2: We're talking about Todd Seabank. Uh, Yes. He's an attorney from Queens who, um, in late 2019, December 2019, he was before a panel of Second Circuit judges arguing about an extremely arcane issue that we don't have to get into regarding the process for getting an affidavit that supports you during the process of getting admitted to the bar. Like I said, for the purposes of this show, we don't need to talk about it. Sick qualifiers, bro. Yes. Uh, But uh, (laughs) he was making that argument uh, when... (laughs) this just wild turn of events happened
1: right his fear of a negative affidavit judge with all due respect has nothing to do with this case i'm I'm
2: that's what that that was the explanation on what the the um perceived injury is no no it wasn't
1: that at all what's the injury are are you serious judge with all the no with all due respect i i I don't know what to say you know what i withdraw my question you can sit down okay Okay. well thank you
3: thank you thank Thank you
1: very
2: very much, much judge We'll hear from... Uh, I see that you read the briefs thoroughly. Listen, you know, you're, you are acting inappropriately. You are acting inappropriately.
1: Shopping, sorry.
2: Well Well, you are acting in a disrespectful and discourteous manner. And that's not appropriate.
1: Uh,
0: <laughs> so- t- I mean, I've heard that clip dozens of times now. But are you serious, Judge? So it's, good! It hits me every time. It's amazing, and the
2: sarcastic—I uh, could see you read the brief. Yeah, amazing. But he um, also subscribes.
1: So, yeah, he also subscribes to the uh, to the Larry David. Uh, if you say with all due respect, you can kind of get away <laughs> with whatever you're doing. He says it a couple times. Uh, that stood out to me this time. Anyway, great to hear his 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 misadventures again.
2: So the um, opposing counsel, who was for the government, stood up <laughs> and just basically says, uh, "We think this was okay," and sits down because the you know let the guy let let the guy cook. Um, yeah, and uh, and then you know uh, so the, the our man uh, bank then uh, tries to have a rebuttal. All right, thank you. Well reserved decision. I had a rebuttal. By then. Are you waived? <laughs> Please, you you've, you, wa- you've you, waived rebuttal. You've waived rebuttal. You've waived rebuttal.
1: My, uh, You're excused. Take,
2: you, you take this. You are excused.
3: Take this gentleman,
2: take this
0: gentleman <laughs> out of the court. Thank you. Sir, sir,
2: leave, leave. Uh, leave <laughs> leave it's it's iconic <laughs> audio it's pro se canon it's good yes. stuff
0: i mean as happy as i am to revisit this just because i i do find that very compelling audio why are we talking about it again
2: so uh, as i mentioned at the up top uh a second circuit panel the uh the the grievance panel for the for the circuit um issued a formal reprimand this week to bank saying that he had violated um uh, a portion of the state professional code that prohibits attorneys from uh, act from quote undignified or discourteous conduct. We heard the judge specifically yes. say discourteous, which yeah, really <laughs> forward thinking stuff. By uh, I, I liked that. Um, uh, so the court credited Bank with sincerely apologizing here. The bank filed a document with the court saying that he took responsibility and and ad- ad- admitted that it was um insulting and acrimonious and he expressed shame and embarrassment so you know he sort of owned up to it uh but the grievance panel rejected a suggestion made in that document that his outburst should be viewed in light of, quote, <laughs> prior poor treatment he has received from judges of this court. Oh boy. Look, the court said, uh, to, uh.
0: Before you even tell me what the court said, I would like to tell you what I would say as if my husband and I were having a similar fight <laughs> and the <laughs> argument was something like, I'm very, very sorry, Amber, but Classic. all the ways you've treated me poorly over the past year have factored into my behavior. I also would reject that from the record.
2: Yes, they, they fully rejected it. They, they said, to the extent that that is being offered as a defense, we, we reject it. The quote: the record does not reflect that the judges presiding over the oral argument did anything that warranted Banks' disrespectful responses or support the suggestion that prior conduct by other judges somehow justified that conduct. There also was no justification for exposing other people present in the courtroom to that conduct. I love the idea of the judges being like, how dare you expose people? Won't somebody think of of the delicate government prosecutors who had to who had to who had to hear this, (laughs) this trash? Uh,
1: Yes,
2: (laughs) but I'll get us out on this. They did uh, sort of lightly warn him that this probably should not happen again. Um, They stressed that any similar incidents, quote, will not be tolerated and may result in his suspension from the bar of this court. So I think the real lesson here is you get one. I think you I can guess, sort of yeah. you can you can you can be mean to appellate court judges one time once, yeah. and then and then you're good and then and then that's that's
0: your oopsie. My takeaway from this is that sadly we probably won't have more outburst audio from this particular person. Well, we'll see or
2: we will. <laughs> good
1: point. Time
0: will tell, guys. Uh, it was nice to revisit this one with everybody. Thanks for being with me for today's show. Alex.
1: Uh, Much like bank, I have waived rebuttal. So I'll uh, talk to you guys next week.
0: And thanks a lot, Bill.
1: I am
2: going to leave. Leave.
0: (laughs) (laughs) We also want to thank a bunch of other people for today's show, including our producers, Kelly Marcano and Steven Trader, our graphic designer, Chris Yates, our guest this week, Ryan Davis, and contributing reporters, Corey Atkinson, Amy Lee Rosen, and Dave Simpson. Music for our show comes from Silent Partner and Kelly Marcano. If you like Pro Se, leave us a written review on your favorite podcast platform. That helps other people find our show. And if you want to read more about any of the stories we've talked about today, check out our website. That's law360.com slash podcast. Thanks and see you back here next week.